Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Now, in this episode, I will be talking about the transmigration of Timothy Archer. This novel was published in 1982. It was published not long after Dick's death. Um, it, therefore, is the first posthumously published novel, but it's not like the other posthumous novels in that it was kind of on slate to be published before, before he died. So it just sort of came out after he died. So, yeah, I, you know, this is... Not really with the other novels we'll be looking at later in this series, whenever I kind of reboot it away. I will look at Radio Free Alphameth in the next episode, but I'm talking, you know, when I finally get around to reading all the all the mainstream novels that were published after he died, you know, that's that'll be its own kind of series. But so this is this is part of the Vallis trilogy. Uh, he saw it that way, many of the fans see it that way. That's how it's often it was actually combined together in one early publication as you know, part three of the Vallis trilogy. Um, and this novel is pretty good. I, if you've been listening to this podcast, you, you know, my feelings about the Vallis trilogy, you know, my, my, uh, dislike of especially divine invasion and, and Vallis largely. I mean, I, I think there are nice things in Vallis and I, I think some of the nice things in Vallis are here in Transmigration of Timothy Archer, but overall it's a much stronger novel. Um, it's notable for a couple reasons one is that it, it's essentially a mainstream novel as well it's it's got a few science fiction or speculative fiction elements in it in the like the later chapters uh, but I think for all intents and purposes you can read this as a mainstream novel but it deals with issues that Dick was interested in at the time such as uh, new religious movements and and the Gnostics and the Dead Sea Scrolls and the um, Oh, and the John Allegro stuff. I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with the John Allegro stuff. He was a guy who was researching the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff back in the 50s and 60s. And he came to the conclusion that essentially the the, the mystery cults that grew up around around the Jesus movement and the, like the early Eucharist and all that, the body and blood, is essentially referring to psychedelic mushrooms. Um, and it's kind of an interesting argument that, that ties into kind of some of the Gnostic stuff that Dick was interested in. He obviously read the book. It's mentioned in Transmigration of Timothy Archer um, just briefly. This book actually has a bibliography. Allegro's not in the bibliography, but um, other, other works are. So it's it's set in California. It's about essentially James Pike. James Pike was a good friend of Philip K. Dick. He was a very, very important uh, uh, religious thinker of America in the 60s and, and 70s. He was an Episcopal bishop. And this character, Timothy Archer, is just drawn from that. So our main, our narrator, it's, it's in the first person, which Dick doesn't do that often. But interestingly, he did it in his other uh, mainstream novel, Confessions of a Crop Artist, which not entirely in first person, but largely in first person. So uh, it's, it's told from Archer's daughter-in-law's point of view, Angel Archer, who's married to Timothy Archer's son. And she gets to know Timothy Archer 
through through her son, and then she faces her son, her husband's suicide, then the death of of Timothy Archer's girlfriend, who was also kind of a friend of Angel Archer, and then finally the death of Timothy Archer. And how she handles that is really the main theme of this novel. And it's it's actually quite good. It's quite touching. And it is a good character piece. For someone who didn't write many female characters, it's a fairly well-developed character and very interesting. And it's never really boring. I think the, the theological discussions in Vallis and The Divine Invasion are boring and not very insightful. Here, they're a little bit more interesting, partially because they're mostly historical arguments. It's a question of what were the early Christians really about and really after, and, and what was their experiences really like. And, you know, you can take the John Allegro stuff, the, the sacred mushroom argument if you want, but the fact that there were these debates going on in the 60s and 70s and, and that Dick's interested in them, it, it all comes off as fairly fascinating. And I really, really enjoy what he's done in, in this, his final novel. All right, so I'm, I'm going to talk about this novel. I'm going to do what I did with the other two Vallis novels, and then I'm going to start with uh, kind of a survey of the overall plot to the novel, and then I'm going to go kind of do a more thematic reading of it. But first, I think we need to introduce ourselves to James Pike. If you're a little bit younger, uh, like me, you, you probably don't know James Pike as a public intellectual, as people, as boomers might know him as. Uh, he lived from 1913 to 1969. He died in Israel. He died actually near Qumran, looking, basically he was investigating the Dead through Strolls. I mean, that's, this is all in the Transmigration of Timothy Archer too. So the, the character dies basically the same way. It's, it's a very loose parallel of him. Um, so I, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page um, from now. He was a, the Bishop of California um, from 1958 until 1966, when I think he resigned from it. Um, now, he's... He's kind of a popular theologian. He was interested in some occult issues, in psychic powers. So he's kind of the one of the religious thinkers of, of like the hippie movement and the drug culture. And, and, you know, Philip Dick, for good reasons, was friends with him because they kind of feed it in, fed into his interests. And it was someone that he thought about after the 74 experiences. If you read the, um, his exegesis, he, he comes back to think about him a little bit. Um, so... Now, James Pike was originally uh, trained as a lawyer, and before World War II, he, be, he actually was a lawyer for a while. He was a lecturer at various universities, and uh, rich, what, was he, was, what was his religion of birth here? I don't see here. It says here he taught at Catholic University of America. I don't know if, you, I don't know if he was Catholic. He doesn't mention his religion. Oh, yeah, he, he was a Roman Catholic when he was young. He considered the priesthood. But anyways, after World War II, he joined the Episcopal Church, right? Of course, that's the Episcopal Church is the American Anglican Church, um, for all intents and purposes. It's it's yeah, it's the kind of the worldwide Anglican Church. If you're outside of England and you're a follower of essentially the Church of England, you're an Episcopal, and that was, I guess, in the United States. I don't know if it was after the American Revolution. The people who were members of these churches had to come up with a name that was in English. So Episcopal came out of it. I don't know the origin of the name. Maybe someone knows. But he joined this after World War II, along with his wife. Um, and he went to uh, seminary, and he got his priesthood. Of course, the Anglicans still have priests, which makes them different from other Protestant branches. But then also, you know, you got to remember all your English history to know the, the whole history of the Anglican Church and their, you know, their identity as kind of... The, 
when originally when the king created the England church, it was just, I'll be the head, everything else stays the same. But over time, it got more influenced by Protestant theology. And of course, you got the Puritans who wanted to purify all of this stuff, get rid of the priests, get rid of the bishops and the hierarchy. But anyways, he he eventually did get go to seminary. He studied in, or he taught at universities, like at Columbia. And I'll, and I'll just read this. Um, from the book. Um, Remaining on the adjunct faculty of Columbia, Pike became the dean of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in 1952. Great church to visit if you're in New York City. Um, Using his new position and media savvy, he voiceforously opposed the local Catholic bishops over their attacks on Planned Parenthood and their oppositions to birth control. He accepted an invitation to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of South in Tennessee, but then publicly declined after finding the university did not admit African-Americans. As an example of Pike's use of the media is how he released his letter to the New York Times before it was delivered to the Sueanese trustees. They heard the news when reporters called for reactions. It's also the time that he publicly challenged Senator Joseph McCarthy's allegation that 7,000 American pastors were part of a Kremlin conspiracy. Um, in New York, Pike reached a large audience with the liberal sermons and weekly television programs. Common topics include birth control, abortion laws, racism, capital punishment, apartheid, anti-Semitism, and farm worker exploitation. So he's um, he's kind of part of that that liberal trend in different religious movements in the '60s, right? There were there was like um, who is it? Who's that guy's name? I forget his name, um, but like the 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 Protestant minister who was like pro gay rights, you know, in the '70s. Um, you know, there like the Catholic Church, for instance, you know, went down against birth control strengthen anti-abortion laws after after the birth control pill came out and all that and and they were kind of i guess on the wrong side of history of of birth control but uh there were people who opposed this more conservative aspect of of religion and so there were the progressive religious voices in the 60s and certainly james pike was was one of them um, so he gets elected to uh bishop of california in 1958 um, and he remained there until 1966 when he resigned and became a senior fellow for the Center of the Study of Democratic Institutions at Santa Barbara, which is a liberal think tank. And all of this is talked about in the novel. So um, it's, it's pretty much a one-for-one uh, description of his life. Um, so his episcopate was marked by both professional and personal controversy. He was one of the leaders of the Protestant and other Americans united for the separation of church and state movement, which advocated against John F. Kennedy's presidential campaign because of Catholic teachings. While at Grace Cathedral, he was involved in promoting a living wage for workers in San Francisco, the acceptance of LGBT people in the church, and civil rights. He was also recognized a Methodist minister for having dual ordination and freedom to serve in the diocese. He later ordained a woman as a first order deacon, now known as a transitional deacon. Among his most notable accomplishments, Pike invited Martin Luther King Jr. to speak at Grace Church in San Francisco following his march on Selma, Alabama. Pike's theology involved the rejection of central Christian beliefs. His writings questioned a number of widely accepted beliefs, including the virginity of Mary, the doctrine of hell, and the Trinity. He famously called for fewer beliefs, more belief. Heresy procedures were begun in 1962, 64, and 65, and 66, growing more intense. But in the end, the church said that it was not in the denomination's best interest to pursue an actual heresy trial. He was a chain smoker and alcoholic. His charismatic personality drew many people to him. Um, he developed a romantic relationship after the failure of a second marriage in 1965. So this woman he has a relationship with 
Marin Hackett Burgund is, again, loosely uh, copied in this novel. So uh, this book, The Other Side, so th this is also very, very important for this novel. Um, and I'm reading it again from Wikipedia. In 1966, Pike's son Jim took his own life in a New York City hotel room. Shortly after his son's death, Pike reported to experience poltergeist phenomenon, books vanishing and reappearing, safety pins open and indicating the approximate hour of his son's death, half the clothes in the closet disarranged and heaped up. Pike led a public pursuit of very spiritualist and clairvoyant methods of contacting his deceased son to reconcile. In September 1967, Pike participated in a television seance with his dead son through the medium Arthur Ford, an ordained minister in the Disciples of Christ Church. Pike detailed these experiences in his book, The Other Side. So um, that's all. And then his death, uh, his death came in Israel. He was investigating the historical Jesus. And for that, he went to um, he went to Qumran to, to see the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were decided. He was walking around there and he basically got lost in the desert and stuck there and he and he eventually died. Um, so nothing here. The Timothy Archer is, is basically a direct copy of James Pike. So in this sense, you could accuse the book of not being very original. I could just get a lot of this from, from this uh, Wikipedia entry or from a biography of James Pike. But that doesn't matter because the novel ultimately is about James Pike's daughter-in-law and, and about her, her encounter with these people and her encountering this aspect of California culture, the, the subcultures, the religious weirdness of it, the, the, the new religious movements and, and all these things that, that Timothy Archer, James Pike, Kind of brings her into through his through his very very charismatic personality, and I think Dick does such a great job making James Pike charismatic. Something that the other theological characters in the Valis trilogy don't have. They're they're essentially boring people who are full of themselves, like Emmanuel and the Divine Invasion in, in in particular. James Pike is is another searcher. He's another seeker, and he's trying to make sense of things that's happened to him and his loss that he's experienced and and his own belief. He comes to believe late, later in life and he's in an institution he's he has a lot of disagreements with and he's kind of become a public persona, public figure, yet his ideas are changing and and all that is very fascinating to watch. So really I, 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 I have a lot of fondness for, for this novel both as kind of a window into kind of the weirdness of California culture at the time, and just as an effort by Philip Dick to, to meditate on James Pike. He doesn't let the Vallis stuff infiltrate this novel the way he does the other two. So I don't even like putting this in the Vallis trilogy. I'd rather say Radio Free Albemuth is the third volume of the Vallis trilogy, and this is a standalone uh, novel, a mainstream novel, that's kind of a love letter to, to James Pike. But nevertheless, uh, Dick called this part of his Valis trilogy. Um, now, certainly there's some things that happen here that, that maybe hint to it. But really, this is, this is about James Pike. And this is about a seeker who, who kind of maybe follows some weird roads. But that's life, what life was like in, in California in the 60s. And so as, as, a, as a love letter to Pike, as a love letter to the 60s. It, it's such an, a fitting end, I think, to Dick's career. Unlike A Scanner Darkly, which is just so bleak about, about this, the world he lived in, 
so sad and so full of loss and tragedy. Now this one has tragedy and loss too, but it's much more of a, it's much more affectionate about that. Um, so, yeah, that that's my that's going to be my introduction to the transmigration of Timothy Archer. So, like I did in the last two episodes, I'm going to shut this off, save it, and come back uh, after jotting down some notes. You know, spend a few days thinking about this novel. I just finished reading it. You know, and and think about what I want to say and what I want to highlight, and then I'll then I'll come back with my thoughts. So I'll see you in a little bit. All right, so I'm back, ready to talk about uh, the transmigration of Timothy Archer in a little bit more detail. Um, so we basically just have a handful of characters. We have Angel Archer, our narrator. It's I think it's the only female narrator that Dick used, except for a few chapters in Confessions of a Craft Artist. I don't know about the other posthumous novels, if if those use any female narrators. But she's actually one of the most well developed woman characters that that dick wrote and and if if you want to just just see how well he could write women he didn't do it often but when he he did he you know he was able to and this this character shows that so we have angel archer our narrator then we have her husband jeff archer um timothy archer his father so timothy archer the main character our james pike stand-in is angel archer's father-in-law then we have timothy archer's uh, you know, girlfriend, mistress, Kirsten, and then Kirsten's son, Bill. That, that's essentially the characters we're, we're playing with. And what happens in the plot is three of, or two of these, no, three of these people die. Um, Jeff, Tim, and Kirsten die, and Bill essentially ends up in asylum. So it's a novel about loss. It's a novel about Angel Archer solely losing the people most important to her and being left alone. Um, so... Um, as the novel begins, it's it's after uh, most of these events have taken place. So most of the novel is a flashback. In this sense, it's it's like um, the Divine Invasion, which has a lot of flashbacks in it. Uh, so she's talking about going to the Barefoot Seminar. The you know this guy's name is Barefoot. He's essentially a stand-in for Alan Watts, according to Wikipedia. But you could just have him stand in for kind of any of the the kind of California new religious movements, new spiritualism, kind of new age thinkers that were popular and could attract an audience. And she's preparing to go to, to talk with them. And there's a lot in this early chapter. It's really great on just seeing Angel Archer's place in California culture and the place of these kind of gurus and thinkers. And of course, we have to remember that Dick was seen as a guru at some point in the, in the late 60s by some people, kind of a guru of the drug culture. <clears throat> So um, there's a little bit of Philip Dick, I guess, in this. This I don't think that's the role Dick wanted, but it's that's one he kind of fell into, um, based on his works and the way his works were received by by people and the way they're presented by Harlan Ellison. Uh, he actually complains about that in Radio Free Albemuth. Uh, now he she has lost her family and friends, and that's what that's why she's going to go to this seminar. But she then then we see her writing a letter to a feminist. A friend of hers and she begins telling the story of her losses and then then we get the flashback and so most of the novel from this point on is a flashback back to uh, the late 60s when these events take place so we learn that she is married to jeff archer who is the son of the famous uh, episcopalian bishop timothy timothy archer and this is really the most of the novel is the conversation with these characters and as i said before like valis and like divine invasion the bulk of this novel are theological talks 
But I like these. The theological talks here are interesting. They're grounded in actual conversations people are having in the 60s and 70s about religion, about the historical Jesus, about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's, it's, not, it's not this kind of ungraspable weirdness that you get in the Divine Invasion. And it's not this, this kind of self-indulgent uh, you know, vomiting you get in, in Vallis. Um, now, maybe those books have some value. I, I'm not rejecting them out of hand, but this one is actually a historical document almost of, of real conversations people were having about, about religion. And I'm not going to talk about all of them because there's a lot having to do with uh, the Episcopal Church position on things, having to do with, um, what's his name, Allegro. What was his first name again? <clears throat> I forget, it'll come to me. You know, the idea of, of the early Christians being a, being a mushroom cult, essentially, interested in psychedelics, very 1960s kind of reading of the historical Jesus. Um, what did the Dead Sea Scrolls mean? You know, it's, you know, was it a window into Q? The, the, I'll talk about Q later, but this was the, the, the source text for the Synoptic Gospels, um, all the Gospels except John. Um, but anyways, um, I like this. I, I enjoy these. And again, I'm not going to talk about all of them or go do the play-by-play. -play. I'm just going to say that the, the theological conversations here are, are fun and they're grounded in history. So I, I find it preferable to always see in The Divine Invasion. You know, the, the, I like this novel almost just as a fairly realistic reading of, of James Pike. But anyways, um, what we learn pretty early on is that she starts to get close to Tim, our, our, our narrator, Angel. She starts to get close to Tim through meetings. She has, you know, she, of course, she knows him through her husband, but she gets closer to him through meetings about the female empowerment movement, a feminist movement that that Angel's involved with. And she's and this Kirsten is involved with and her, her friends are, are tied to it. And Timothy Archer is a feminist. He supports the, the you know, women becoming clergy in the Episcopal Church. So he's kind of the pro-feminist uh, religious thinker at the time, one of them. And so she starts getting close to Tim. She just starts having meetings with him. And during one of these meetings, it's like a dinner meeting at, a, at one place, uh, Tim meets Kirsten. And pretty soon after this meeting, she begins to have an affair with Timothy Archer. And Angel figures this out pretty soon. And she's actually a bit horrified. This bothers Angel Archer quite a lot, who sees it as adultery. Um, now, we learn something about Timothy Archer in this Part of the novel that is going to carry throughout it and that is that timothy archer is very very good with words he's um, very very persuasive he's he knows theology so well he knows the bible so well he can quote it verbatim so he always can grab the quote he needs he can always grab the context he, and even when he doesn't go to the bible he knows so much about the conversations of the time about uh, various debates going on he can just kind of pull information uh, and use it. And so he's a he's he's kind of Teflon in this and even as he experiences losses and, and other things happening to him He's always able to shift his positions But it's very very difficult for anyone to actually confront him head-on and to challenge him especially Angel Archer So when you read these conversations you you get the feeling that Angel Archer always being outflanked a bit by by Archer by Timothy Archer, but it's actually Dick I think showing just how commanding a personality Timothy Archer was and he, there was a reason he was so popular there's a reason James Pike I mean there's a reason Jim, James Pike had such a huge role in American culture in the 60s um, and here's just the first time we see him just talking around this accusation of adultery through kind of legal loopholes and the Bible and, and stuff like that so later at a party Tim begins discussing the 
Qumran scrolls, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And Jeff, um, at the same time, at this part of the novel, starts to develop feelings for Kirsten. And so that's going to be the early tension in the novel is Kirsten's relationship with Timothy Archer. And then Jeff, who's married to Angel Archer, starts essentially falling in love with, with Kirsten. Um, there's a really interesting conversation here about the occult. And I want to, to read this to you. See, one thing that Jeff and Kirsten talk a lot about is one of Jeff's obsessions, which is the Thirty Years' War and the character of Walderstein. Walderstein was, of course, the, the Austrian general, one of the major players in the Thirty Years' War. Kirsten was a Swede, so she kind of knows the story of Sweden's our participation in the Thirty Years' War, and that becomes a point of bonding between them. But what really is interested in, interesting Jeff here is like the occult nature of Walderstein and his occult curiosities, and this sort of ties to to Hitler, who had similar concerns. Um, Dick writes, so this is all Angel Archer's narration. Now, Jeff had enrolled in a serious project tracing the ills of modern Europe back to the Thirty Years' War, which had devastated Germany circa 1648, causing the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire and culminating in the rise of Nazism and Hitler. It's Third Reich. Above and beyond the courses pertaining to this, Jeff now advanced his own theory as to the root of it all. Upon reading Schiller's Wallerstein trilogy, Jeff leaped to the intuitive insight that, that, that had the greater general not gotten involved with astrology, the imperial cause would have triumphed. And as a result, World War II would never have come into being. The third play in Schiller's trilogy, The Death of Wallerstein, profoundly affected my husband. He regretted the play as more to any of Shakespeare's and a lot better than most. Moreover, no one had read it, at least insofar as he could tell, except himself. To him, Wallerstein loomed as one of the ultimate enigmas of Western history. Jeff noted that Hitler, like Wallerstein, relied on times of crisis on the occult rather than on reason. In Jeff's view, this all added up to something significant, but he could not fathom just what. Hitler and Wallerstein just had so many traits in common, Jeff maintained, that they resembled bordered on the uncanny. Both were great but eccentric generals, both had utterly wrecked Germany. Jeff hoped to do a paper on the coincidences, extracting from the evidence of the conclusion that the abandoning of Christianity for the occult opened the door to universal ruin. Jesus and Simon Magus, as Jeff saw it, stood as the bipolarities, absolute and distinct. I couldn't have cared less, end quote. Now, that's how I feel when I read The Divine Invasion. I couldn't care less. Uh, I care about, this is kind of interesting stuff, uh, maybe because I'm, my, I'm a historian, not really expert in this period, but, you know, I have some curiosity in the history of the occult, um, mostly because I want to understand Lovecraft a little bit better. But her statement here, I couldn't care less, is such an interesting commentary coming at the end of Dick's life about all this stuff going on. And it's actually the whole theme of the novel, if I want to jump to a spoiler at the end. Essentially, at the end, she goes through all these weird experiences, bordering on the supernatural. And at the end, she says, no, I'm not jumping into that rabbit hole. And that rabbit hole is like the whole of this kind of weird California bizarro culture that, that this whole novel is sort of criticizing. And yes, Timothy, Timothy Archer, you know, James Pike is kind of on the borders of that weirdness. Uh, but so are the other people in our life. Everyone's sort of involved in that. I don't think there's any rational characters that we really run into. Everyone's kind of weirded out by this, this culture and these conversations going on. And they're all kind of interesting, much more interesting than what we see in Divine Invasion again. But it's from the narrator's point of view is it's all nonsense. And so she's the kind of the rational observer of all of it. <clears throat> but anyways, um, that's what Jeff starts getting involved with. He starts talking with Kirsten more and more about this and slowly falls in love with her. Now, Tim realizes at some point um, 
and I'm, I messed up the order a little bit here, but he somewhere around this point in the novel, he realizes that the Qumran scrolls suggest the existence of, a, of what he calls a UQ. Now again, UQ, or Q comes from the idea that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, had a common source, right? So like Mark was actually one of the sources from Matthew and Luke. And then, but there's some commonality between like Mark and one of the others that suggest a common source, right? There's similar stories in both Gospels. And so the idea is that Q then, Q then is some kind of a, an, an original Gospel that these others copied from, right? And we don't have it, but, you know, we can kind of, we know some of what's in it because of the common verbatim, you know, issue. Uh, phrases and sentences and and stories in the synoptic gospels well the dead sea scrolls then just become kind of one back the source for q right and that's what's called uq now what's really weird about this is the dead sea scrolls actually go back before the time of christ right they go back 200 bce um not all of them i think they're actually dated over a period of time right um I don't know how much Dick actually knew about the Dead Sea Scrolls or how much we now know about them that wasn't known in the 70s, but at least some of them go back a couple centuries before the time of Christ. So what does that tell us about Christianity then, the historical Jesus and this culture of belief in the Near East? Um, and I think there's a real strong parallel here between that culture of Palestine in the Bronze Age in those centuries and what Dick's trying to say about California. He sees them as very comparable, that you have gurus, you have um, teachers, you have uh, weird ideas. You have drug use, and that gets into the Allegro stuff, right? The the, the mushroom cult narrative, and I think it's a it's an, it's a copy of it, right? You know, of course, at least I think that's what Dick's trying to get at is that same kind of weirdness that he sees in California is what existed in the past, and that becomes part of the significance of of the Qumran documents, the Qumran scrolls. So Tim's religious views start to shift due to his study of the, of the Qumran scrolls. And for instance, he starts at one point talking about the Promethean nature of Satan, or, or actually complaining Satan wasn't Promethean enough. While Prometheus gets fired to the gods, Satan only found out the true nature of God and kept it to himself and, and didn't tell us. And his real sin was not sharing it with us. So this uh, rather fascinating conversation is presented as kind of a shift in Tim's Religious thinking, and at the backdrop of all this is James Pike was investigated for heresy uh, by the Episcopal Church at some points, and, and in the novel, Timothy Archer is as well. Um, so that's in the backdrop of all this, is he's becoming under, he's, he's facing greater and greater, I don't want to say persecution, but he's facing greater and greater uh, oversight in his theology and his religious views. Um, now, Tim then starts to explain the concept of Anoki, um, which is the John Allegro. There, I remember the, I wrote down the first name here. The John Allegro uh, idea that the early Christians were involved in basically psychedelic mushrooms. So I'm going to go to the Wikipedia article for John Allegro in his book so we know exactly uh, what's talked about here. Definitely Dick read this book. It's mentioned several times in here. So John Allegro, 1923 to 1988, English archaeologist and Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. Uh, he published some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. His most famous book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, brought him both popular fame and notoriously and notoriety and almost destroyed his career. Okay, I'm just going to skip ahead to the section on the sacred mushroom and, and the cross. Um, 
There's actually two books he wrote, one called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and the other The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Myth. They were written about 10 years apart. Um, the Sacred Mushroom was the one that Dick would have read at this point. It's, uh, it was published in 1970. Actually, he could have read both of them. Um, okay, quoting here. Allegro's book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, argued that Christ began as a shamanistic cult. In his books, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross and The Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Myth, Allegro puts forward the theory that stories of early Christianity originated in an Essene clandestine cult centered on the use of sizzlebin mushroom and that the New Testament is a coded record of the shamanistic cult. Allegro further argued that the authors of the Christian gospel did not understand the Essene thought. When writing down the gospels based on the stories they had heard, the evangelists confused the meaning of the scrolls. In a way, according to Allegro, the Christian tradition is based on a misunderstanding of the scrolls. He also argues that the story of Jesus was based on the crucifixion of a teacher of righteousness in the scrolls. Mark Hall writes that Allegro suggested the Dead Sea Scrolls all but proved the historical Jesus never existed. Allegro argued that the Jesus in the Gospels was in fact a code for a type of hallucination or hallucinogen, the Amati Muscara, and that Christianity was a product of an ancient sex and mushrooms cult. Critical reaction was swift and harsh. Fourteen British scholars, including Allegro's mentor, denounced it. Sidney White Crawford wrote of the publication of Sacred Mushroom, right or wrong, Allegro couldn't be taken seriously as a scholar again. Allegro's theory of a shamanistic cult as the origin of Christianity was criticized sharply by Welsh historian Philip Jenkins, who wrote that Allegro was an eccentric scholar who relied on texts that did not exist in quite the form he was citing them. Jenkins called The Sacred Mushrooms and the Cross possibly the single most ludicrous book on Jesus scholarship by a qualified academic. Um, all right, he eventually had to resign his post. And these books have stayed in print. In November 2009, Sacred Mushroom and the Cross was reprinted with a 30-page addendum. It's kind of popular idea, though. I mean, um, I don't know how it st stands up with the other historical Jesus studies or the historical Jesus doubters, um, but it's wild. And I can understand why Dick was really attracted to this idea and interested in it, um, given his, his interest in drug cultures. And that's just the parallel. You know, like we have uh, Angel Archer constantly smoking grass, right? We have characters always like... Uh, um, manipulating our minds. There's heavy, it's heavily suggested that Timothy Archer's on drugs at various times in this novel. Uh, you have Bill, who is Kristen's son, who also uses drugs at one point. Then you got this, you know, these early Christians on drugs. So that is the parallel, I think, that's going on in this, this novel, contrasting this kind of weird California culture with the, the culture described by the Qumran scrolls. Well, anyways, that's enough on John Allegro. Take it or leave it. Uh, Timothy Archer certainly begins to take it. Now, somewhere around this point in the novel, uh, after this Qumran, uh, or Noki, sorry, it's the Enoki, that's the term used in the book for the mushrooms. I haven't been able to find that term used. Maybe it's in Allegro's book. But um, after this realization that the, the Eucharist is really this Enoki, really this mushroom, uh, Jeff kills himself. He kills himself mostly because his his love for for Kirsten and as this kind of unrequited love got deeper. At this point in the novel, then though, after the killing herself, actually Angel Archer kind of just doesn't seem affected much by this death. Um, now I know this is presented as a, a commentary on, on these deaths after that it came and none of the deaths really seem to affect her personally. Um, there's no pathos here with them. She just kind of moves on with her life objectively. She's the, by far the most rational person here, but her point of the book is not to be, you know, not about dealing with loss so much, but to describe this world that these losses are contextualized in. 
So she meets Bill, which is Kirsten's, who is Kirsten's son, and he's a younger man, obviously. Um, he's a car mechanic and kind of a painter. His name's Bill Lumborg. Now, Angel starts to feel a, a little bit out of place due to the, 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 her loss of, of, of Jeff. Um, now, we see a conversation about drugs and cult, which, of course, is meant to parallel the, the Allegro stuff. I'll find it for you. She uh, We have here, the law office and candle shop one day ceased to be in business. My two employees got busted on drug charges. I had foreseen it. More money could be made in the sale of cocaine than in the sale of candles. Cocaine at the time did not enjoy the fad popularity that it enjoys now, but the demand even so amounted to an inducement that my employers could not refuse. The authorities managed to accommodate them in their inability to say no to big bucks. Each bank got a five-year prison term. I drifted for a few months drawing unemployment compensation. And I squeeze on a retail record clerk, and then she gets a job there. She moves on. Uh, psychosis takes many forms. You can be a psych psychotic about everything, or you can concentrate on one particular topic. Bill represented ubiquitous dementia. Madness had infiltrated every part of his life, or so I presume. The fixed idea kind of madness is fascinating. If you're inclined towards viewing with interest something which is palpably impossible and yet nonetheless certain, overbalances the notion about possibilities in the human mind, possibilities of something gone wrong that did not exist. If you could be, if you could not be supposed. And then she goes on talking about psychosis. Um, now there's a couple things happening. One is she was, the closest she gets to kind of falling off the wagon is with the death of Jeff. The second is this introduction of this character, Bill, who is mentally ill. He's kind of facing schizophrenia. He's been in institutions. He's, he's kind of in and out of institutions and, and, um, and he has all kind of psychoses. So she's kind of just around nutty people is, is the feeling that we get. And she pretty much stays stable compared to everyone else around her. But uh, drugs are omnipresent in this novel. Not just angels smoking weed, but other characters on, on drugs or selling drugs or using them. Timothy Archer's whole quest at the end of the novel is to find a drug, a hallucinogenic drug that the ancient Bronze Age Palestinians used. Well, later, Kirsten tells Angel that she and Timothy Archer start having or have essentially have been contacted by Jeff and have been visited by his spirit. Tim starts to work on a book about spiritualism called From the Other World. And again, this is all stuff drawn from um, Pike's life. So this, this kind of really happened. I don't know if in exactly this time frame or this series of events, but, you know, that's something that James Pike did after the death of his son, after the suicide of his son. So uh, this book he knows is going to get him on the bad side of the Episcopal Church. So he basically knows his career is over. But uh, Kirsten and Tim really try to explain to Angel why this reality of this. For them, they're totally convinced it's real. And they have different evidence of it. One is like uh, watches set to the time of, of Jeff's death or, um, you know, things moving around they originally think it's a poltergeist and then they find out later on from evidence that it's actually jeff returning to them now bill lumberg ends up in, you know confined again in jail actually uh, after coming down again with with a bout of his mental illness and they kind of bail him out of jail um now he's he resists just stuff he doesn't fully believe that but um tim is always um kind of insisting on this. And we again, we see just the power of, of Tim Archer's personality in that he can always command the conversation. He can direct it where he wants to go. And even the most bizarre things he's saying seem reasonable in his when he, when he articulates them. 
Now, Tim, as a result of this, starts to f lose his faith in Christ, both as a historical figure and, and as, a, as a spiritual figure. And he starts to regain his interest that he had before the death of Jeff in the historical Jesus. So um, his loss in faith leads him back to this question of, you know, the Allegro book, the, the mushroom sex cult, and, all, and, and the question of the historical Jesus. And this is when he probably starts beginning his plan for his trip to Israel. He leaves the church and, and or he decides to leave the church because he knows he's going to be fired as soon as they see his book. His book would be totally heresy, uh, the one on the basically it's a book of spiritualism right if you don't know spiritualism was a kind of a fad in the late 19th early 20th century even in the mid 19th century uh sir arthur conan doyle was involved in this so anyway so he decides to join a think tank to to make a living knowing he's going to be done in the in the episcopal church um now they start to go to see a medium uh kirsten and and tim and this medium is is rachel garrett and she's you know, a spiritualist and she's able to talk to the dead and she seems to know things like she knows when they first met the name of the restaurant where they first met and you know we all know about cold reading and what is presented here is very ambiguous um you know and the whole novel is, is meant to kind of leave us questioning whether anything supernatural is going on here and you know i know it's a dick novel so you want to almost believe something supernatural is happening but you know i think it's you can kind of take it either way um, but they do see this medium, and this is uh, where it gets a little bit weird, where she kind of does seem to know some things about them. Not long after this meeting with this medium, Kirsten kills herself. Um, now, Tim's response, as it seems his response to Jeff's death, is quite intellectual. Um, he, like, for instance, doesn't even read her suicide note. He just buried, burns it. Uh, he blames drugs for um, Kirsten's death, and this is more evidence that, that her and Tim... We're, we're on drugs. She was on barbiturates. Uh, there's another thing I forgot to mention is that she was dealing with cancer. This is a, a note we see throughout the Vallis trilogy. You know, the sick woman, the, the ill woman. It, it's in Vallis. You got the woman with cancer. We got suicide in that one. We have uh, ribus in Divine Invasion is, is on drugs. So that's a recurring theme and, and probably it should be, I should have maybe made more mention of that here. Uh, Kirsten was, was sick with cancer, but for all these reasons, her barbiturate addiction or cancer, she, she kills herself. Maybe she was freaked out by the Jeff Archer sightings too. But Tim just blames drugs for it. Um, now, but Tim's kind of faith and purpose starts to get revived at this part of the novel after Kirsten's death. And, and she, he really starts to want to kind of pursue this trip to Israel to, to seek out the Anoki. Um, Tim's career sort of goes on. Angel sort of watches it for a while, and there's some kind of distance between them. But he later approaches her about working for him, and he says, like, I'm going to Israel, and I need, need, need you to help. At first, she thinks he's propositioning him you know, as a, like, to be his mistress, and eventually he explains that he, he needs like her help as a research assistant with him. She refuses to go, but he does explain that he wants to go find the Anoki. So he goes to Israel. Um, and almost immediately after he leaves, we get uh, Angel narrates to us that Timothy Archer died, right? And his death is pretty much the same as the death of, of James Pike in real life, getting basically lost in the desert and, and dying uh, of, you know, being exposure to the elements. That's when she goes to see the Barefoot Seminar. So we're back to the beginning of the novel when she went to see that seminar. 
Um, and when she meets him, uh, he, now this is again a stand-in for Alan Watts, but again, it could be any kind of weird guru type in California at the time. And he talks to her about Timothy Archer. So we get kind of another medium who's informing on people in her life. And he claims that Timothy Archer was a bodhisattva, right? Now, if you remember your Buddhism, a bodhisattva is someone who achieved enlightenment but chose to remain on earth to, to, to serve others until all their beings reached enlightenment, reached nirvana. Um, and he basically tries to argue that Timothy Archer was a bodhisattva. Um, now, later, Bill meets up with Angel Archer, and they, they get closer. Of course, everyone in their life has sort of died, so uh, Bill's still got mental illness problems. Angel Archer's pretty lonely. She's working at a record store at this point. So, you know, but Bill starts to say that Timothy Archer exists in his mind. Now, this is the titular transmigration of Timothy Archer, that in Bill's mind, Archer seems to live. And there's evidence of this. For instance, he seems to understand foreign languages that he wouldn't know like Greek, some languages that Timothy Archer knows. He seems to talk at times, and at times he seems to take over Bill and speak directly to Angel Archer. So this is, again, another kind of weird thing. You can interpret this as just a product of Bill's mental illness, or you can interpret it as an actual transmigration. Um, again, Angel resists these more wonky um, supernatural explanations, uh, sticking with, uh, you know, the the more materialist one, or at least, if, even if not, she, she just kind of wants to turn her back on the whole weirdness of this culture by the end of the novel. But nonetheless, she does try to investigate it. She asks questions, and she tests for, um, you know, does he, does, is he just speaking nonsense, or is he speaking languages, right? So something that Dick talks about in a couple of these Valis novels is, you know, when people talk in tongues, it's not gibberish, right? When Pentecostals talk in ton, tongues, they, they often just talk gibberish. That was not the point, right? The point of speaking other languages was to be able to um, preach to the nations of the world, right? So you have to be speaking real, actual languages. It's just got to be languages you don't know naturally. So it's kind of a miracle of, of knowing other languages. Um, so they test that, and it seems he does have some knowledge of Greek. Um, now, they smoke pot together, and sometimes later, Bill is returned to the hospital. She talks to the doctor, and the doctor just berates her and accuses her of bringing on his renewed hosp hospitalization. And, and he says, just stay away from Bill. He doesn't need you. So in this way, she sort of lost another um, friend and, and someone close to her. Um, she goes once again to Barefoot Seminars. And this time, uh, this is the last time, one last time she goes. She listens to what he has to say. But at the end of the novel, she concludes that it is all basically nonsense. And that's the... Uh, the conclusion at the end. There's been hints of this. She's before responded to weird stuff before by saying, I didn't care, or, you know, I didn't really buy this stuff. But the conclusion after all this is she walks away from all this. Now, you think she, Dick is building up step by step, bringing in the supernatural, right? First it's the, uh, the poltergeist, and then it's the Jeff apparition, then it's the transmigration. And it seems you're becoming more and more convinced that something's really going on here. But the character isn't. And I think that's a wonderful way that Dick kind of pulls the rug out from under us. We might be convinced of what something weird is going on here. That Timothy Archer has really taken over Bill's mind in a way. But that's not what Angel Archer thinks. So she talks to him. She says, thanks for the seminars. 
And then, quote, I finished my coffee and then left. The weather struck me as good. I felt a lot better. I could possibly get almost another $30 for the record. I had not seen a copy in years. It's long been out of print. You must keep these things in mind when you operate a record store, and acquiring it that day amounted to a sort of prize. For doing what I intended to do, anyhow. I had outsmarted Edgar Barefoot and felt happy. Tim would have enjoyed it were he alive. End quote. Now, the context here, I, I should have explained it before, but the context here is that she, in, she's basically trying to uh, get this rare record from from Barefoot that he has. A very rare recording, and at first he doesn't want to give it up, and then she kind of, you know, says, oh, but you're giving me all this insight and, and all that. And finally, he warms to it, and he says, okay, if you let me tape it, I'll, I'll give it to you, and she gets it. And she was just kind of conning him. She never really buyed anything he was saying. And that's how the novel ends, with her gloating over having outsmart uh, this, this guru and, and gotten his record that she can sell for maybe 30 bucks. Um, so that is the transmigration of, of Timothy Archer, the plot of it, the story of the novel. It's, I think it's quite good. I think it's um, got a lot of interesting uh, discussions. It's, the characters are fairly likable. I think uh, some of the more well-defined characters, Timothy Archer, um, and, and Angel Archer in particular, but even Bill and Kirsten are quite strong. Jeff is not as appealing as a character because he's just sort of there to commit suicide and, and have his weird fascination with Hitler and Walderstein. But nevertheless, it's, you know, most of the characters are pretty sharp. It's, it's, a, it's a very small novel. And I, I love how in so many of his novels, it starts out fairly conventional. It's a science fiction novel most of the, mostly, but they start out as a conventional science fiction novel and then they get weird. This novel does the same thing, but at the end, it's kind of like, well, it's all sort of a joke. It's not meant to be taken that seriously, and our narrator doesn't, so you shouldn't either. Yeah, which is a great way of thinking. It's almost like if, I, you know, Dick didn't know this was the last novel. He was planning others. He was planning to write Owl in Daylight, and, you know, I'm sure he didn't expect to die in 1982. He probably planned to, to have many novels after that. So this wasn't like the end of his life, his final statement to his fans, but... It kind of works that way as a as a kind of a winking to the to the audience to the readers about not to not to take any of this stuff a little you know too seriously especially this Valis stuff. So really really fun and great novel and and I think if you're going to read one of the Valis novels this is the one to read unless you really are interested in the 1974 experiences of Philip Dick then you have to read Valis and Radio Free Albemuth, um, which which we'll get to next. As for themes, I couldn't find that many. Th distinct themes it's got some of like it hints at a lot of the philip dick themes but um you know like the i think overall this is a novel of the of like the 60s culture you got the drugs you got the new age movement you got um the music actually this is set in the 80s right because one of the first events is is uh, john lennon's death but um of course james pike died in 69 so it's, it's a little set in the four it's not set quite in the 60s but it sort of feels that way with the New Age stuff and the, the musical culture and the drugs. And Dick's fascination with music gets here. His fascination with opera, his interest in, in theology is here. Um, you know, the drug culture is presented more ben in, in a more benign fashion than it is in, in novels like A Scanner Darkly, which is just so bleak and, and, and just such a negative view of, of, that, of that world. This is kind of back to a little bit more hippy dippy kind of culture which which i kind of appreciate i, I mean i'm not too hostile to it I, I mean i don't 
I think there's some there there's value in kind of the opting out, I guess. And not that these characters are all opt opt outers, but they're they're being creative, and and I kind of appreciate that. And the drugs here are not presented as an evil, right? Um, as they as they are in the scanner darkly. Um, certainly, new religious movements are really really strong uh, theme in this. Whether it's Timothy Archer kind of falling off the theological wagon of the Episcopal Church, or you got that barefoot Edgar Barefoot guy who's doing seminars on his boat, uh, or you know, the kind of the weird interest on the occult of Wallerstein and Hitler, or whether it's the early Christians or the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, all of these have, you know, are all, they're all new religious movements in a way, right? And we can't, we got to remember that Christianity was a new religious movement at one time, right? It was a weird, radical, you know, subculture at first that kind of developed into a world religion over time. Um, uh, another theme here is the California culture. It's just, I guess that's kind of crossing over, cross-pollinating my themes here. But uh, this really does, you are really in California here, especially in the early chapters where, where uh, Angel Archer really nails that home of where we are. We're just in this place uh, where rules don't apply, not because reality is breaking down. The reality is quite banal. It's just that for some reason people here let their minds go wild and that, that's it's kind of fun um the marriage theme is again here i don't think there's a single philip dick novel where we can't say that where marriage or relationships is key uh here we have an incredible amount of alienation between jeff and angel jeff's essentially gearing up to have an affair with kirsten although he can't really get close to her but you know he gets increasingly alienated from angel her response to his death is not as emotional as you might think. That seems to be a relationship that's been fraught for some time. And then, of course, you have the theme of adultery played with here. Jeff was kind of moving that in that direction. Um, you got a lot here on music, classical music, uh, you know, music from the late 20th century as well. And then one last theme I, I thought is here a lot is, is especially in the character of Timothy Archer, his importance. Besides telling the story of James Pike, the the theme of the individual and the institution is is key to his character. Um, he is a character who's constantly struggling with the institutions around him, whether it's the church um, or or the social expectations, but particularly the church, I guess, and the dogma and uh, what's expected of him as a bishop. Right, and he strive he gets his individuality through rethinking religion and rethinking his faith. And other characters seem to do that too. Um, and maybe the whole culture is kind of in, in, in rebellion against the institutions of, of kind of the bourgeois world, right? The, the black iron prison of Francis Fremont, as we'll see in Raider Free Aldmouth, uh, is maybe the, um, this whole culture being described here and being kind of lovingly honored almost by, by Dick is part of the way we resist the institution, right? It's not about you know. It's not about embracing religious dogma. It's about embracing religious curiosity and, and exploration. And it's not even about finding the divine savior from abroad. That's gone from this narrative. It's not like Valis and divine invasion in that there's a savior from below. It's it's a quest. We're back to a quester, um, which is nice. Uh, Timothy Archer he fails in his quest, but he's searching for for something real, right? A real historical fact, right? He goes on this historical journey into. Uh, the Qumran scrolls and later on he needs to go on a physical pilgrimage 
And that's how he kind of stakes out his autonomy from the institutions that have controlled his life. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's not many themes, distinct themes here, I, I guess. Maybe if I thought about it a little bit more, I could find some more. But um, that's all I really want to say about Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Um, only about an hour of, of talk, so. but I guess that's long enough. I think you get the idea. And I urge you to, to check out this novel and, and, and read it um, as, as part of the Vowels trilogy. Or if, if you're just going to read one, I, I do recommend this one just as the best novel. Um, it's less likely to make you want to pull out your hair. So one more work to look at in the Philip K. Dick book club, at least in this phase of it. Uh, and that'll be Radio Free Albermath. Radio Free Albermath was written in 1975 to 76. That means it's his immediate uh, novel length response to the events of 1974. So they're, they're the closest to it. Um, it. It has a lot of themes similar to Vallis. In fact, this is like a subplot in Vallis itself. Like it's part of the alternate reality that's hinted at in Vallis. Um, I think it's a better work than Vallis. I, I think it's it's better than Divine Invasion. Um, so it's, it's if I'm going to rank these four novels together, this is number two uh, of my favorite. Um, it's it's more of a story. It's actually a story about political power and resistance and, and movements and, and those kinds of things. I, I, I like to see that stuff in Philip Dick. I don't like the the you know the the, the ennui of, of waiting for the the savior from abroad. Um, it was published in 1985 uh, after Dick died, of course. So it is a technically a posthumous novel, but it's so tied into these Vallis issues and this Vallis trilogy that I have to deal with it now rather than with the other posthumous novels. So that's what's next. So if if you have a copy, read Radio Free Albemuth for the next episode. Well, once again, do it as a one-off episode. I'm not going to break it up in this case. I was going to do my plan was just to do the Vallis trilogy, the Vallis, um, the four novels of the Vallis trilogy. In, in four episodes. So um, that'll be all. Um, so let me know what you think of, of John Allegro or uh, Alan Watts or, or James Pike or, Timothy, or Transmigration of Timothy Archer or how Dick talked about it. Um, you know, what do you think Dick's trying to say about California culture? Do you see a parallel between this culture he's describing and, and what Allegro is trying to describe about the early Christians? So anyways, let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or just drop a comment below um, or leave a review on, on iTunes. So that'll be it. See you next time with Radio Free Album. And pain.